Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything healthcare and technology. I'm your host, James Somaru, and this is your weekly Sunday session. Hey everybody, hope you're having a great week this week and uh, if you're in the UK, hope you're enjoying your bank holiday and your day off tomorrow. So for this week's Sunday session, I've got an interview with Professor Sultan Mahmood and he's the Director of Innovation, Integration and Research at the Royal Wolverhampton Hospitals NHS Trust here in the UK. So from the very humblest of beginnings, and you'll hear a couple of stories on this, Sol, as he likes to be known, really rose the ranks through the NHS via jobs in Big Pharma. And he is now very much involved at the coalface of health tech and innovation, helping his trust bring in loads of different technologies like that of Zesty, in fact. And you can hear from Lloyd Price, one of the co-founders of Zesty, from only a few episodes ago. So we had a couple of issues with the audio on this one, so apologies for the uh, the volume and quality dipping in and out from uh, from Soul side, but you can uh, definitely get the vibe and get the idea of what's going on, and uh, I hope you can stick it out because this is a really really good one for uh, info. So hope you enjoy it. I certainly did recording it. Soul, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? Thank you, James. Uh, I'm I'm very very well. I'm very well. Uh, how are you? I'm I'm all right, thank you. Um, just looking out the window, it's uh, pretty gloomy. Not not the glorious heat wave that we've had over the last few weeks, but um, it always it always perks me up when I see the sun in the morning. But sadly, sadly not today. But anyway, um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Sol? Well, I'm speaking uh, to you from kind of the sunny West Midlands. Uh, I'm um, working from home today, one of my home days. So as you know, because of COVID and other things. Um, We've all moved to home working, and usually I'm in the office pretty much every day. But to kind of lead by example, I'm working from home. I'm doing my by kind of one day a week. Oh, very nice. Leading by example. I like that. We can probably talk a bit about leadership as we uh, as we go through. Um, and obviously the West Midlands, I know extremely well because that's uh, where I grew up. I grew up in uh, sunny Wolverhampton. So I, uh, I'm i definitely au fait with the area that you're working in, sir. So uh, we can definitely get into it. Um, but listen, the way we start these podcasts is I get you to tell a bit of your story, mate. So it'd be great to uh, for our listeners to hear all about you, all about what you're up to in kind of health and technology and innovation, and very much from the uh, what would you call it, the demand side, I suppose, with uh, with your position. But yeah, tell us all about it, dude. Well, I, I, I'm Sultan Mahmood. Um, I'm uh, 42 years of age and a uh, kind of very proud father of three kids, uh, ha- happily married. Um, I've, I've been in the NHS really, James, since uh, since. Um, 2001 it's kind of my NHS was my second job I started off in big pharma um, and really my background I come from uh, if you like very humble beginnings uh, first one at university um, struggled through university if I'm honest because uh, I had to uh, pretty much work full-time to kind of pay my way through uh, uh, it was some, hard, some difficult times I remember I remember um, midway through my first year um, such was a budgetary constraint. I had to choose between washing up liquid and shampoo. Um, I did choose shampoo wow. because I'm worth, I'm worth it. No, no, I didn't. It, it was a very difficult um, three or four years, and uh, but we got through. We got through. Um, and uh, as I said, I joined Big Pharma, working in regulatory affairs um, at GSK at the time, and worked there for just over a year before I got homesick uh, and then moved back to the Midlands. Uh, and, and guess what? The first job, 
that came up was kind of a, a lonely bamboo or something um, um, uh, for the NHS in the old health authority. So I'd do photocopying and make copies and, and kind of steadily climbed up and have uh, been, a, been in the NHS kind of over 20 years, now, just over 20 years, and I've been a board director for eight of those years. Um, so it's been a kind of an interesting journey, but really um, not taking no for an answer and always kind of questioning why probably leading the things that have kind of got me to where I have got. You know, I've been really fortunate to have some wonderful people I've worked with uh, and I've done some really interesting uh, things as a result of that. So I kind of feel really blessed, James, um, an interesting life. Definitely, definitely so. And, and certainly, I mean, the humblest of beginnings, you know, choosing between washing up liquid and, and shampoo, and that's outrageous. Like, uh, I suppose... I was talking to, I was actually talking to Graham from MTech, which is a the health tech company. I might introduce you actually, but um, I was chatting to, the, to to Graham about how you kind of grow as a, as a person as, and as an entrepreneur. And often we talked about the fact, well, Graham basically talked about the fact that often your, your, your ceiling is often set by the people around you, isn't it? And you kind of aren't really sure what you can achieve and you you don't think that you could make millions or even in you know your case you know rising to the ranks that you've eventually risen to now you, you perhaps wouldn't have known that if you weren't surrounded by the right people at university and things I mean how how, how was it for you this sort of I guess it's, it's almost like a meteoric rise isn't it from from those types of beginnings to where you are now did you ever think that was possible and what what do you think gave you the the, the feeling that you could achieve that um, to, to, I think there were two seminal moments in my life, and I certainly tell the story to my children. The first one was, um, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but it was a, 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 our old family GP who's no longer with us. And uh, um, in those days, there were there were a lot more home visits, and uh, it was a home visit. And uh, I was kind of eight or nine years of age, and I was asking about his job, and, and he kind of was polite, but then he said, you, you shouldn't be bothered about these things. Um, you're going to probably wait on tables or, or drive a taxi, wow. was his response. And I, I just didn't accept that. I didn't like that, um, first of all, because it hurt my feelings, but also I had this defiance um, kind of from that moment. Time. I said, well, why, why should this middle-aged doctor um, who might be a brilliant clinician, but not a good person necessarily, mm. um, make that comment because he, he sees my socioeconomic background and kind of what people in my community tend to do, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that really difficult, but it kind of built that defiance in me. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not going to let somebody else really define what I can and cannot be, and I don't think anyone else should really. And the second perhaps seminal moment was um, I was actually <laughs> waiting on tables at the time. This was... <laughs> when I was about 14, um, to kind of just bring home uh, enough money in the house to kind of keep it going, living, you know, with my parents were going to, you know, all that was called sense kind of thing. And there was a there was a, um, a lady who I was immediately kind of impressed by just the way her humanity came out, uh, and she spoke so warmly, and, and and she was just not accustomed. She was just there was something special about her, James, and she said to me. At the end of the night, she gave me a really big tip and she said, look, um, there's something about you, lad. And these were her words. There's something about you, lad. You're going, to, you're going to do something amazing. There's just this energy and, you know, reach for the stars. And a complete stranger. And, and that just hit me so hard. Um, it stayed with me and, and defined my thinking. So kind of two things. One, one person saying, 
you're probably going to do X. And another person is saying, well, there's something in you, and I don't know quite what it is, and this is energy, um, you must use it. And, and, and that really inspired me to kind of do better and, and do more and aspire higher. Um, and, and, and as really, I, I have followed her advice and I've just been experimental and trying new things and, and moving forward, but with humility and understanding that, you know, um, things can go wrong, but that's okay. Um, going wrong sometimes leads to kind of many lives afterwards. It, yeah, I mean, you're, you're touching on so many kind of principles of entrepreneurship and leadership and perhaps just muddling through life and and all the problems that we all encounter in in life and love and work and all the rest of it and i want to now go on to something that you mentioned as as kind of the the way you got another way you got to where you are which was always asking why and not taking no for an answer and i think those two things really really chime with me and they i'm sure really chime with anybody that feels at any point they've wanted to innovate or at any point wanted to change something or make something better or you know change the system or you know all those different things that we associate with with entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship and i don't know it just really it i think those if i had to isolate two things that when i very first started on my journey of trying to change things i'd say those two things that you've mentioned were kind of how i found a bit of an identity almost in what i was doing and i could hang my hat off and i was pretty proud of the fact that i did these two things and i think that was really important because as you'll know in a in a very ossified system like the healthcare system that we have here it, it is very difficult to change because things are often as they've always been and that is that 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 creates an extreme level of inertia and rightly so because changing things can be pretty dangerous when it comes to healthcare and actually that inertia leads to quite a lot of safety i imagine but i think going back to one of those elements which is then asking why i think that's the start of it and i think that was always the start of me you know why is that filing cabinet there and not there why is this printer still not working why is it difficult to fix why do we take blood cultures in this way and send them here and not get them back quicker? Like asking why then led me onto the things of then not taking no for an answer, right? In, in which is the resilience that you need as an individual to change. I'd just be interested in your thoughts as to kind of how you started on this journey. Was it similar to me with beginning with asking why and then eventually trying and not taking no for an answer? Or yeah, what was, what were some of the first things that you tried to change? First, I mean, Initially, James, I mean, I think asking why is probably the, the, the elemental step. Yeah. Because as you as you know, and, and you're you know you're, you're a doctor, um, uh, have been through the system, have trained, you will have seen many many things, right, from kind of AE to the GP practice to kind of clinical wars to the surgical wars. In terms of what I call incumbency syndrome, kind of this is the way it's always been done, custom mm. and practice. And, and right from the outset, I, I would just see things. Um, and be watchful. So I would, I would see them and say, well, why are we doing that? Yeah, why are we processing patient data like that? Why are we inputting yeah. into paper? Why is it duplication? Why is the patient telling the story three times? Yeah. yeah. And actually, when you drill down into the why, it's because it's we've always done this. Yeah. Um, it's comfortable, uh, and the alternatives aren't yet fully fully done. Yeah? yeah. So as you know, kind of disruptive innovation comes from comes from kind of you know looking for looking for 
um, uh, kind of clear sounds in, in lots of noise and then being able to kind of spot it. So the watchfulness, yeah, as well as kind of, so you must be searching for the why as well. So the watchfulness in a scenario, in a setting clinical or managerial or otherwise, just watching for kind of faint signals of, of, of difference, a different way of doing things. And then just growing that slowly, you know, nurturing that, getting a group of people who, who might be able to um, support you. Because the NHS, as you know, is very ossified. There are kind of um, infrastructural issues. There are issues around incumbency, um, all systems, payment systems, clinical systems, data systems, you know, and, and lots of assumptions surrounding those things. It's not the easiest place to innovate. But if you get a group of people who are genuinely interested in making change, so you, you need a group of ninjas, as I call them, in every organisation. And from that, great things grow. And then actually, as the challenges come, you've got to be really ready and clear, have the you know, conviction in your beliefs that this is going to be better, demonstrate it. Because as you say, it's a clinical environment. You know, if a banking transaction goes wrong, um, okay, um, it's, it's painful, but you know, it's usually a fix and the money can be returned. If if the clinical situation goes wrong, catastrophically wrong, uh, there are problems with real people's lives. And as you know, all of us need to rely on the NHS. So, you know, it, it, is, it is kind of risk aware um, entrepreneurial behavior as opposed to kind of um, go for it. Yeah, there's a way to do things in the NHS. Um, and, and we've got to remember 73 odd years, vast majority of people get a really good service. I mean, pound for pound, for all it's being aligned, um, it's still a very, very good health service. I completely agree. And I, I absolutely, I'm already like loving this conversation because it's really articulating a lot of the initial things that I did when I was starting, you know, when I was doing quality improvement projects and all these different things. There is a way to do things with the National Health Service here in the UK. And I think the, where that is for me is that the NHS, as you know, is full of people and it's, and it's held together by these people. It's held together by workarounds because everybody's super stretched and everybody's operating at 110% capacity. Yes. And unfortunately, there isn't the time and the space, the energy, the money, the resource to bring in things that can make a difference very quickly and very dramatically to everybody. And so anything that comes in or anybody that comes in or any system or any new product or anything that tries to then make things easier on those people has to do so extremely carefully. And it's because, as, you, as you've alluded to, there is a way to do things with the NHS, which is that you lead with listening and you lead with respect. You lead, you lead with respect for the way that things are, because that is what a group of very stretched people have been doing for a very long time, very successfully, by the way, treating a lot of people and getting a lot of people through that system. And so to come in saying that you've got the next best thing and that it's far better than anything you've ever thought of and all the rest of it is just going to be met by absolute rejection. And I, I learned this very, very quickly in that when I was doing quality improvement projects, it was very quick to see and understand that I had the respect of people because I, for, for just because I thought it was logical to genuinely listen to people for a very long time before I thought of then implementing a solution. And it just so happened that that was the best way to do it because you then gain the respect and the trust of people to then bring in either an extra bit of paperwork if it was the worst of the types of quality project, or actually in the best case, here's a technology company that's doing something similar, but they are just going to sit and listen to you for 48 hours, like literally back to back in a room before they build something specifically for you. And I think 
that that kind of there is a way to do things is so 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 important and for me that is that is respect and and another thing that you mentioned you know getting people to support you so 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 important because you you as an innovator as an entrepreneur as someone doing quality improvement projects or indeed somebody that's liaising with loads of technology companies outside has to have the support of the system in which you are trying to innovate it all starts here and getting the trust of all those people on board is so important and i think obviously from your from your and there is a question in this so from your kind of rise through the nhs to where you are now how, what do you what do you think has led to that rise? Obviously, as you say, humble beginnings and working at then Pharma and GSK, which, by the way, is is also probably not the best place to work if you then want to go and get respect in the public sector to go and work with Big Pharma. How have you gained the respect of those people? Because you've done a lot of of really good innovation stuff, which we'll come on to. I mean, how, how did you build that, and how did you make that work for you as you rose in your career? James, you've touched on it really well. So I think there is the bit around understanding that you're in a you're in a system. And there are constraints around it, constraints in thinking, constraints in time, constraints in money. You've alluded to that. Uh, and, and actually really listening to kind of people's concerns. But you have to balance that with kind of the desire to do better and more um, because the patients really deserve better. The paradigm that's kind of served us well for 73 years is probably not going to serve us for the next 73 years. If you're going to see another 73 years of the NHS. So just really kind of anchoring that thought saying we do need to change. But... You know, it's classic ESCO stuff, isn't it? Kind of, you know, you've got an incumbent business model, an incumbent way of doing things, uh, and it serves, to, it serves you to a point and then it starts to decline. When you introduce kind of disruptive innovation, and, and I talked about kind of Clayton Christensen's brilliant phrase of faint signals with lots of noise, yeah, and then kind of emergence of a validated model. In that kind of growth part of it, you've really got to kind of build a constituency, and, and the clinical constituency is really, really important. Okay, so the clinicians, I think, in the NHS are heroines and heroes, really, for me. I mean, what we've been through over the last six months with COVID um, really claps on a Thursday after evening are, is probably not what we need. Uh, we probably need some, some kind of resource and support. But just looking at clinicians, um, we need to kind of give them, you, you've alluded to this as well, James, in terms of kind of running at 110 miles an hour. So, so job plans that have space for critical thinking, visioning, you know, what if scenarios, problem solving, yeah, is really important. Yeah. Um, you probably did a lot of your work, James, when you were kind of a, a jobbing doctor, despite kind of the system, yeah, in your own time, just because you're inquisitive. And again, yeah. we've got to make the right things easier to do. So always kind of, if we can, um, give give clinicians job plans that are flexible and allows them kind of problem solving and, and, and kind of support around that. Um, also, I think it prevents burnout as well. So what I've what I've tried to do with people I've worked with is give them space and time. And guess what? You know, they're in a Maslow comes out this joy in work. Yeah. So they've got a kernel of an idea. You give them time and space and support. And that's what a manager's job is. You know, uh, as a kind of NHS director, my job is to create conditions for better care. Um, I can't treat people. I haven't. I don't. I haven't got a medical but the people I work with do and they know really well how to treat people but if we create kind of circumstances where they're critical thinking and a new way of doing things and things like clinical quality improvements are kind of embedded they really do kind of rise to the challenge but at the same time there's a bit of there's a bit of challenge back so you know there is a give and there's a get isn't there inevitably in life so kind of you're given the space and time but the expectation is kind of 
you know, we need to kind of move this on uh, and we need to do a lot of thinking, but we need to have some action because the patients really deserve that. And again, and in, and in, in terms of that kickback, that applies to all levels, really, at the board, uh, at the wards, and actually at the regulation at kind of central level of the NHS as well. Um, because, you know, we, we it's easy to throw bricks at kind of people saying, oh, the regulators are X or the centre's doing X. Well, actually, you know, how have you communicated to them? What's the quality of your communication? What's the intent behind it? Genuinely, most of these people have come into the NHS or the Department of Health to do good for people. And it's that quality of dialogue and engagement that's really, really important. Uh, and, and people can spot uh, when someone really wants to do something as opposed to someone who's pretending. And I think that authenticity really plays a big part in kind of making innovation stick. That's, that's my experience, certainly. You know, it's it, it's such a good point. And it's so easy, isn't it, to spot problems, really. If you if you exist in a system with lots of problems, which, you know, every big system will have problems, you know, no big system is completely and utterly the most innovative it can be. I think it, it's always easy to, to, to spot problems. You know, I can even remember as a doctor, you know, if, if you're in the doctor's mess and you're just, you know, chatting with people, you're always going to talk about the bits that gripe you in your day and yeah. this could be better and this could be this and this could be that. But it's easy to do that. It, it really is easy to do that. And I think that if you then want to get involved in solutions, it's not—it's nowhere near as easy. Because as we've already said, it starts with asking why. It then starts with this massive listening exercise, an exploration exercise to figure out why on earth is the system like it is. And then all of a sudden, you realize, as you've perfectly alluded to, all the different people involved when it comes to why it is actually the way it is, but also if you're then going to change it. And it requires this incredible communication exercise. And it is two-way communication, I suppose, with, with listening and then and then doing and communicating to make sure that all the different players in a system come together to actually solve a problem. I mean, to, just to put some, you know, make an actual real-world example of this. So I can remember, I think I've told this story a couple of times on this podcast, um, when... I was on neonates and they did uh, a special care ward round on whatever day that I did it. And every single day when I did this ward round, I'd have to tell people, oh, I'm really sorry, like your, your blood cultures, which were meant to be back in 48 hours, are not back. And this is like three, four days later. And it was just constant. And so I just went on this, I literally just followed a blood culture and I was like, what on earth happens to this thing? And then realized that it goes to pathology and in the, and in the lab, it, it enters this basket via the pod. And then if other blood cultures go on top, it ends up at the bottom of the basket. And so there's no way that it's necessarily put in, in the queue in the right order. And there's nobody overnight. And in order to solve this problem, you've then got to combine like all the, all those different departments, finance, leadership, the board, the neonates department, you've got to look at budgets. You've got to, you've got to figure out where you're going to make savings to, to spend on it. Like, you got to write a business case. You see, it requires so much and it's messy and it's not actually that uh, glamorous to, to get involved yeah. in that stuff. And I think that's where people kind of might, might assume that, that what we do and what we have done in innovation is all like Facebook and Apple and, and, you know, fancy design and tech and like all this stuff. To be honest, most innovators have the respect of me just simply because I understand how actually difficult it is to adopt things in, in healthcare. And it just requires this insane level of understanding and communication between so many different parties. And that's why innovators always have my respect. Yeah, it's, it's, you're, it's a really good case study, James. I, I think what we as kind of um, senior management within the NHS need to do to make those kind of things easier to kind of address. So 
I think it goes back to the culture point um, that I think you alluded to, James, where actually in, in a large organisation like the Trust, you know, we have 10,000 employees to kind of, you know, lots and lots of processes. Again, what is the culture conducive to people calling out where something is rubbish? Yeah? And, and, and the turnarounds, if you, if you look really carefully at the turnarounds in kind of some of the hospitals particularly that have had problems and, and have come around the other side, eight, the great leadership in the communication, uh, but also it's kind of practical solutions to problems, yeah? So if something can be fixed fairly quickly, why is the need for a kind of, you know, war and peace type business case, yeah? Um, <laughs> Yeah. Really, that, that shouldn't be the case. And certainly in our trust, we try and make the right things easy to do. And there is a culture of kind of calling things out and saying, well, actually, this isn't working. Are we going to do X? And I think what has got to be really strongly communicated is if you see stuff, it doesn't have to be a grand innovation. It could be something kind of what we term as kind of minor. But those minor things, good old Dave Brailsford, add up. And guess what? The patient gets a much, much better service. Yeah? So, so we have, as the management has to, uh, engage the staff to kind of call out those problems. So we have a forum within our organisation. Many other organisations do stuff kind of around innovation where people kind of come in with their ideas, big or small. And we sponsor them to kind of see it through. Sponsoring means kind of advice and support. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's writing a business case, whatever that may be. But you've got to have those forums. Uh, and, and actually, James, you did that in your own time on your Todd. Um, but actually, yeah. But patients will also have a really, really good kind of um, cold-faced view of what's, what's going wrong as well. And again, we tend in the NHS um, to have, have an idea and then kind of retrofit that idea with patients in an engagement forum, as opposed to kind of asking the patients um, what could be better. I remember the, the book that really stuck with me um, a few years ago. I don't know if you remember Terry Leahy at Tesco. Now, he's much maligned now, um, but at the time he was... He was kind of leading Tesco. I think kind of one in every six pounds in the UK was spent there. And his whole mantra was actually all of the good stuff that come about, you know, the, the club card, etc., and the ideas around how the shelves are laid out came from the customers in the shop. So there was a forum he had with about 100 people most months um, that he wouldn't miss. And those were kind of normal day-to-day um, -day customers who were giving his views. And he picked up so much from that and implemented them in the boardroom and kind of then it kind of took a, took a life of its own that really made a change to the business model yeah they stood out from the other their rivals and grew similarly in the nhs i think we kind of pay lip service about a patient engagement and clinical engagement we've got to really do it authentically because whether the doctors nurses or or, or 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 citizens or patients they can spot when somebody's telling them a fib and somebody's telling them a lie so the, the authenticity point is really really important yeah, if you've got to listen, really listen and do something about it. Um, um, and it doesn't have to be a grand change, as you've quite rightly alluded to. A small innovation uh, is, is good enough, especially if, if it kind of concatenates and you, you're going to have something quite remarkable for patients at the end of it. I love that lip service versus authentic communication and getting that feedback from patients that I imagine is actually quite triggering to quite a lot of people in in health tech, if I can say that, because I think it's always it's always talked about. It's always talked about, you know, patient feedback, and we involve patients, and we speak to these patient groups, and and all the rest of it. You just wonder how much of it is is lip service versus authentic. And I think certainly for certainly a lot more people are a lot more authentic than others, and perhaps less loud about it as well, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, 
but you're but you're absolutely right and actually you know even the, the like videos i was watching this morning on like youtube whatever like it's one of the things that separated amazon that they've just been so outrageously consumer and customer and user centric that it's meant to them it's led to them winning and obviously bezos always been obsessed with it um, I actually had someone on the podcast, the chief, the chief digital officer of Novartis, Bertrand yeah. Olsen. He, uh, he actually worked for Jeff Bezos at a really early stage of Amazon and um, at a point where there was literally a bell whenever they had an order in the office. And uh, he talks about that. So uh, I'll ping you the link to that, mate. It's a really good episode to listen to. I, I'd, I'd love to hear that. And James, it's so important because if you think about where health service, the health of the population is going, um, you know those patients now with uh, who are over, say, 65 with five or more comorbidities, yeah. nationally and internationally, that's going to kind of double in the next generation, yeah? So the status quo in terms of patient care will not be able to manage, even if you were to able to clone doctors and nurses and be able to kind of build hospitals at a whim. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. No system in the world can, can manage that. However, if you make the patient part of the solution, so there's a self-care transformation, that's needed, and a kind of community transformation. If you make them partners in the in the enterprise, if you like, they will be able to kind of manage themselves. And this is where tech, particularly, has a real advantage. So, you know, we know about remote monitoring and digital health, and kind of analytics to kind of provide anticipatory care. If we are to kind of really, you know, pick out the the, the, the faint signals of those from the lots of noise that we see, and and, and put services and let data drive care processes, I think we could we could really stand a good chance of kind of meeting that demand and managing those patients within the confines of their own homes or communities in a much better way, relieving um, um, doctors and nurses to deal with the more complex patients in hospitals and GP practices. We have got to do the patient engagement and the community kind of engagement really authentically. And, and the NHS, we have to kind of have a different type of leadership, I think. We need a, a diversity of thought in that thing because we are a heterogeneous country. Um, the BLM thing has really kind of brought that to a head, but actually the diversity of thought in NHS leadership could be a lot, lot better. Something that's personally kind of driven me, but I see, I see kind of the same old problems being repeated up and down the country. I do a lot of speaking and kind of consulting on, on, on behalf of the NHS, and you see the problems of why people are kind of doing the same old thing and expecting a different result. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to happen. I love that, man. And so what I want to talk about with the last sort of 10, 15 minutes of this podcast is obviously what, what you're doing now. So can you, can you explain your, your job title, what your job yeah. is, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? And uh, I believe you're working with quite a well-known health tech company as well. So if you tell us about that, that'd be ideal. Okay. So, um, so I'm the director of uh, innovation, uh, integration and uh, great title, by the way, and research. So I, I probably the, the most fun job in the NHS. I, I'm at the interplay between academia, clinical services, uh, uh, and the local community. Yeah, and and health tech. Yeah. So so my job is to kind of just just have an eye to the future and kind of embed it, embed it safely and kind of um, and, and move the organisation and the system slightly more to where we want to get it to. So really, I think a lot of people that are listening are probably going to be after your job now. Well, I think a lot of people will be a lot better actually. <laughs> if I'm really, if I'm really honest. But it's a really interesting job. So, so I run the, the innovation team, uh, and our job is really, you know, firstly, to, to look at digital particularly and think about what um, is out there at the moment that can be safely um, implemented in our organization. 
Um, we have a we have a leadership in the organisation that's very very culturally astute and, and, and culturally just. Um, David Lawton, our chief executive, has been in post since 2004, uh, and the biggest thing he's got he, he's a mover of people, uh, and actually he's he's a serial entrepreneur and will always ask the question why, as, nice. as you and I have done, and that makes the culture quite permissive to things like this. So I'm in I'm in the right place first of all. Um, and what we're doing around the kind of tech sector, we're dealing with several companies. The two, the two standouts for me, I think two or three standouts. So we deal with teletracking in the States, uh, who, are a, uh, who are an asset location company. And we use RFID technology to track hospital staff, beds, all assets in the hospital. And we know in real time where, where things are. So kind of bed management is done on a digital basis. And, you know, in our 12 o'clock and 4 o'clock bed meetings, we don't have to phone around and see how many beds there are in a particular nice. it's, it's there live on, on the live on the screen and again the capacity to do that um when i went to america last year and had a look at the system i mean they i think you can run all of the beds in the nhs across six control centers that do not need to be anywhere near hospitals so in terms of kind of managing demand it, it could be very very different that's one company we're dealing with and they've, they've been around for seven or eight years working with us uh, babylon's another company that we did some work with recently where um as you know james we're an integrated provider of primary secondary and community care yeah. And in terms of the gains that we had in, in primary care, in terms of kind of um, providing back-end business support to the practices, et cetera, um, process re-engineering, I think we've, we've done as much as we could. We really need, kind of need the next level of kind of transformation. So we looked around the market and, and several players are there, but I think Babylon, because of their experience in primary and, and secondary care and, and community care and, and their experiences abroad, they came up with a range of solutions and we use something called um, Ask A&E, similar to colleagues at UHB and other places in the country, where we provided kind of chatbot, uh, AI-driven chatbot support to patients who, because of COVID, are not necessarily um, entering the hospital space because they're afraid. So there's an additional layer of support. And what that does is put a digital uh, infrastructure on a physical um, service. So the patient goes through the chatbot. If they need a doctor or nurse to, to kind of talk to, they do that on the video. And if they need a doctor or nurse uh, to talk to in real life, in, 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 in physically, um, we arrange that um, for, for that to happen. Um, and again, it's, 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 going, it's early doors going well. We've had 5,000 plus kind of interactions and the patient ratings are, are really high. Um, so again, that involves quite a lot of work around kind of data, uh, around kind of business engineering, around kind of understanding the processes, uh, and, and actually getting our community teams, we're a community provider as well, to kind of engage with the technology. And the nurses particularly, I have to say, have really, really risen to the challenge. Uh, and and it's, it's it's work in progress, but it's kind of uh, hopefully um, um, a taster for the future. And I suppose the last thing I suppose we'll talk about in terms of actual companies we've worked with, uh, you will have heard of Zesty. Um, oh, yeah. I wrote um, about them in Forbes very recently. Yeah, I mean, Zesty... Um, uh, and I started talking around stamps, essentially. So when I found out we spend 70 or 80,000 pounds a month on stamps in our hospital, I was kind of flabbergasted. What? Uh, and that's most hospitals. James. 80 that's grand on yeah. stamps, as in postage stamps. Postage stamps for patients to get a letter to say, uh, James, you've got an appointment on the 5th. Oh, my days. Now, I, I don't know about you, but other than, other than um, one or two things, I don't get much mail anymore. Most of my stuff comes on email and most of my kind of banking and kind of utilities have gone online. So patients are similar to me. They're not very different. They live in the same country and have access to the same technology. Now, 
we want to do something about that. So actually this SD provider patient portal where communication to patients is done through that portal and bookings for things like that patients are are also kind of available there. So again, it's early doors yet, but kind of come September, our expectation is patients will be communicated to um, um, in terms of correspondence through through, uh, a digital app and and, and eventually um, in the fullness of time, patients will be able to book slots for our patient appointments, not when the letter says, can you turn up on the 5th, but actually, patient on the phone will be able to say, well, actually, this is 7th and 8th, but I've got a slot, but the hospital's got a slot, that's instead of this convenient for me, because I don't have to kind of arrange for agency, I'll do that. So that's the kind of three really practical demonstrations of using tech. Uh, and again, we've done this because, A, there's a lot of passion and enthusiasm, the leadership is excellent, I have to say. I mean, the board and the clinical leadership is, is, is really, really positive. Uh, but also, we, we don't mind failing. We'll, we'll have a go. And and actually, the, the excuses that you hear from organisations around, oh, the centre's not permissive, or this, that, and the other. Actually, um, from what I've experienced, the centre are trying their best. I think you, you need to look at yourself first and not look upwards always. Um, I know it's a heavily bureaucratic and kind of centralised system, but actually, you can be quite permissive as long as you're kind of running the checks and balances that you would run through for members of your own family. Yeah. Um, so I think th- those are three examples, James, without going to any more detail. There's, a, there's about 10 or 12, but I'm going to bore you and your guests. So I'm not definitely not going to bore us, mate. This has been great. We might get you back on to talk about the others. But one, th- one thing I want to finish on here, mate, is that you have just touched on what I think is the most, one of, if not the most, important mentalities of an intrapreneur or an entrepreneur which is look at yourself first before blaming those above you i think it is the job of entrepreneurs in whatever system they choose to be part of to try and innovate to to work with what they've got you know deal with the hands you've been dealt you know just find a way to do it rather than simply complaining about it. And I think that is what separates those that do innovate and those that are entrepreneurial like yourself, because it's, it's that thing of like, everything's your fault. If, if you genuinely believe that everything is your fault, that you didn't miss out on getting that product in because the system was terrible, you missed out because you weren't good enough for the system. That breeds a mentality for you to grow and to change and to learn and to adapt and to do better next time. And that is the entrepreneur mindset. And I think it is so refreshing hearing that there is somebody like yourself with not only, you know, the, the background, the knowledge, the skills, et cetera, to, to do this stuff. But, but as you said, you, ha- you share the mentality of entrepreneurs in that you, you also believe things are your fault if they don't go well. And, you know, that in combination or that sitting as the guardian between the technology and actually making an impact in the NHS, I think is so, so, so important. And I think my last question for you would be, you're obviously working, it's it's in Wolverhampton, isn't it, where I grew up that you're working? Yes. Yeah. And so for, for entrepreneurs listening that have health tech solutions, you're obviously working with, as you as you said, you know, scores of health tech startups that you're actually working with. There's obviously a, a route here for to somebody who is very sensible, who knows what they're doing in technology and investment and even the NHS side of, of procurement and as well as clinical and the managerial, all those different things. You're obviously somebody that that 
is is an extremely good resource for a lot of startups listening, both as a guardian to actually getting, you know, trials, contracts, pilots, whatever you want to call it, but also for advice. And so I guess for those listening, first of all, what would your advice be to them? And secondly, if they want to contact you, do you have a means of them getting in touch with you? Yes. So, so absolutely. Anybody who wants to get in uh, contact, James, I'll share the details with you. Happy to. And I get, I get, I get scores of people and team look through them, and, uh, and I'm happy to kind of engage in that. In terms of advice to start with, I think the first thing is, um, I think some respect around the problems that we're facing. So a lot of the time, we've got people who turn up and I've got a solution, um, but and, and here it is. And, but they don't ask me what my problem is. Yeah, I've got, as you know, I've got you and I both know there's a the scores of problems. So trying not to kind of impose a solution on us is really important. And, and people that listen, we really respect. The, the second thing is, I mean, the way we do our business here is twofold. The first thing is before anybody takes fruit in terms of a product, I take them to two to forums. First of all, I, I get a sense of the people that I'm working with. So if, if they have the same value base of kind of wanting better for patients, and I was kind of check um, kind of where, where that's at. So you know, they must they must hold the value that we are here to serve the people. The, the greatest invention in modern history is the NHS. And actually, if they kind of chime with NHS values and kind of the, the service element, we will really kind of um, be warm with those people. The next thing is. I take them to a clinical forum where clinical leaders at all levels really meet uh, and, and, and we have a, a chat. It's not even a pitch. We have a chat around kind of what, what they think they can do, what they think our problems are, what the solutions are. And then we talk kind of about how this can be practical. The next, almost concurrently with that, James, I, I have a patient service innovation group, which I've, I've nicked the idea from Terry Lee, his 100 people he meets. So I, have, I don't have 100, I have 25 people across the strata of society in Wolverhampton, ranging from ex-professors um, to taxi drivers and everything in between, yeah? And, and, and we run the ideas with them. Uh, and, and we don't have a prejudge kind of, we're gonna do this, what do you think? We have kind of, there are six or seven people have come to talk to us today, which one kind of think might be useful? So we have a chat with them and then kick, kick out the technologists and have a chat amongst ourselves and we say, okay. And they give me permission, they say, well, why don't you pursue this further and come back to us? So it's that kind of thinking that that I, I adopt. In terms of kind of um, startups, be really clear about the problem you're solving and don't try and impose a pre-made solution. Adaptability is really important. Values are really important. And actually, you know, if they have some sense of, if you like, the journey of, a, of an idea or a product through the NHS sausage machine, that's really, really important. You know, what they've got to understand is the NHS is quite bureaucratic. But if they find the right people, we can move things on really quickly. But you've got to do kind of a lot of the work to support the, the idea or the product through the kind of the system as well. So it's not just the product, it's the other kind of heavy lifting that we would require support on. So if anybody kind of wants to do things like that, call me, ring me, text me, WhatsApp me, happy to talk. So this has been an absolute pleasure, my friend. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute of this. And um, next time I'm up in the Midlands, I'm going to give you a shout and we're going to uh, discuss this over a beer or a coffee, definitely. That would, 
that would be great, James. And, and you've got to, you've got to teach me how to speak like you because you know your dulcet tones. I don't believe came from Wolverhampton. <laughs> Do you know what it is? I think it's 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 then going to university in Nottingham, living in Liverpool, then moving to London, and and you know dipping in and out of like you know loads of travelling to like South America. You know that's basically how you do it, isn't that? And that's how you dilute your accent. I've learned, but um, not that I want to because I'm uh, I, I, I I I still go down to Molyneux, mate. I love it down there. So like, um, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, Cool, man. So, yeah, as I say, absolute pleasure, my friend. And uh, it's, it's, I'm so glad you came on. So, thank you. I hope it's been helpful. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.